it is on. Uh, thank you. <laughs> the power resides in the back. That's how important the production team is. If they're not happy, it, nothing's happening. So, <laughs> and they all said amen. Um, a few weeks ago was the uh, North American Baptist uh, binational every three-year gathering, and they played several videos, and we're going to share some of them in the next few weeks about being shaped for mission. How do we uh, engage our changing cultures with the gospel in new ways? And this was one of them. There were several, and many of them were very powerful, and so I hope you enjoyed that as we share them. Well, I'm glad you're here this morning. My name's Shell. I'm the lead pastor here at Pilgrim, and um, we're going to dig into John chapter 14 this morning. Now, if you're new here, we rotate between a verse-by-verse series going through a book of the Bible. The Bible's made up of 66 books, um, and also a topical series. And last Sunday, we did a topical series on a, sort of a Christian thoughts on pride and some of the things that come up with uh, pride. And so today we're back into the scripture uh, in terms of going through a book. If you want to turn with me to John chapter 14, John is in the New Testament, which is the last third roughly of the Bible, if you have a full Old Testament, New Testament Bible. And it's in the first four books of the New Testament, which are called the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I grabbed my Bible with lots of notes today, not the one I normally use for preaching, so everything is in a different location. It's all been moved. No. Um, the books don't move around, mind you. It's uh, not magical in that way. So uh, this passage we're going to get into today, there's a lot of things going on there. And um, there's three sections we're going to look at in outline format. Uh, the first section is verses 1 through 4. Uh, the second section is verse 5 through 7. And the last section is verse 8 through 14. So 1 through 4, 5 through 7, and 8 through 14. We're going to read it uh, through, and then we'll read parts of it again. By way of introduction to this part of uh, the Gospel of John, uh, John, of course, was a disciple of Jesus, and he's writing some years later the, the account of Jesus. As it became apparent, Jesus wasn't returning within that immediate generation. And so that's how we have the Gospels. And John went and got eyewitness testimony. In fact, there's several places where he name drops people that if you read this within a certain time period, you could go back and verify So when we talk about the historicity of the Gospels, are they reliable? Uh, That's one thing to keep in mind is that uh, pieces of the Gospels, or all the Gospels, these were written, some of them were still written within the lifetime of those living witnesses. So someone reading this could go and actually talk. If you're making something up in the ancient world, you don't do that. You don't name drop people that are still alive, people that you can go verify things with. You write a much later, as some of the myths of the era would, would have been written. Uh, but this is stuff that is within a living memory of people that would have been there. And so it's important when people wrestle about, is the, is the New Testament reliable? In terms of ancient documents, its reliability is super high, higher than most ancient documents. In fact, some would argue all other ancient documents, because they tend to be written farther uh, along the path, uh, farther out from the events than when the New Testament is written. And First Thessalonians is perhaps one of the earliest books, and it's written within a few years of Jesus' death when Paul is traveling and, and ministering to the churches. So um, that's a whole other subject. But as we look at John today, this passage, um, when I came to it, part of me was tempted to just skip over it. I don't know if you've ever read anything in the Bible and you're just like, you know what? Eh, psh, keep moving. Because there's three sections here. One of them, one part of this, one key verse in this passage really speaks to me, but the other two, because of the church I became a Christian in, sort of are ones that I just kind of would 
um, as a younger person anyway, just sort of fuzz out, you know, like the Charlie Brown teacher, that's an ancient reference that when the teacher's voice came on, if you've ever watched any of these reruns, teacher's voice would be like, wah, 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 wah. So when I read verses one through four and later on, because of the kind of tradition I became a Christian in, they talked a lot about this. In fact, there was an old gospel hymn as we are about to read these verses that said this, I've got a mansion just over the hilltop. Some of you old folks know this song. I know you do. In that bright land, my Elvis voice, where we'll never grow old. And it goes on. Uh, what is it? And then there's a, there was another one too. Yeah, that was the chorus. In that bright land, we'll never grow old. And someday yonder, we will never more wander, but walk on streets that are purest gold. Okay, now those of you that have been dying to sing a hymn, this is your moment. We're going to sing that chorus again. If you know it, sing it with me. I've got a mansion just over the hilltop in that bright land where, where we'll never grow old. And someday yonder, we will never more ponder, but walk on streets that are purest gold. Okay, that was pretty good. Give yourselves a hand. Give yourselves a hand. That was, uh, yeah, yeah, okay, all right. It goes on, and it talks about, uh, there's some good stuff in there. I'm satisfied, the first verse says, with just a cottage below, a little silver and a little gold. But in that city where the ransom will shine, I want a gold one that's silver lined. This theology within this hymn, there's some good parts and there's some really bad parts. But this comes out of passages like we're about to read in John. And there's this sense when John is dealing with this return of Christ and the eternal life, the life of the world to come, that is, on one hand, if you're new or considering Christianity, can seem extremely abstract and strange. And yet you find that those believers that have been there for a long time, as you near the end of life, some of these teachings on the life of the world to come gain a lot more potency for you as you recognize that you are headed more towards that life than the life on this earth. And so I ask you uh, to bear with me if some of this sort of it sounds tedious to you or understand that there are some folks in our room this morning that are much closer to what these gospel songs and the passage that we're about to read, at least part of it, speaks to this morning. And this is the great doctrine that Christians call the great Christian hope. That this is not all there is, but there is more. And we lean into that article by faith, and sometimes in our youngness it's hard to grasp that. But if you're young and you experience the death of a sibling or a child or someone that's dear to you, all of a sudden, your brain starts to wonder, I wonder, I wonder, is this all there is, or is there more? And we talk about this as the yearning for eternity that God has perhaps placed in our hearts. And so this morning, we're going to dig into John, and I will invite you to read this with me. So if you're able to, one more time, why don't you stand, so if you're able to, so I know you're not going to fall asleep on me. And we're going to read through this. Uh, this passage, okay? Look at your neighbor and say, uh, uh, stay with it. (laughs) It's going to be good. And so these are Jesus' parting words to the disciples and starting at verse 1. And we'll read these verses together and then we'll pray. Uh, And he said this, join with me, please. Do not let your hearts be distressed. You believe in God, believe also in me. There are many dwelling places in my Father's house. Otherwise, I would have told you. Because I am going away to make ready a place for you. 
And if I go and make ready a place for you, I will come again and take you to be with me, so that where I am, you may be too, and you know the way where I am going. But Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus replied, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you have known me, you will know my Father too. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and we will be content. And Jesus replied, Have I been with you for so long, and you have not known me, Philip? The person who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father residing in me performs his miraculous deeds. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. But if you do not believe me, believe because of the miraculous deeds themselves. I tell you the solemn truth, the person who believes in me will perform the miraculous deeds that I am doing and will perform greater deeds than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Let's pray, and then we'll move into this. Lord, thank you today for your presence here. And it is always an honor to gather with brothers and sisters, and seekers, and questioners, and believers And Lord, other than the powerful work of your spirit drawing and wooing, uh, none of us would be here. And so, Lord, again, today we come before you in worship and community and the word and the things throughout the week. And God, we just we want your Holy Spirit to breathe again and to illuminate this word, to, to lighten it up, to show us, to shine a light on it for our lives and our time. Do your work as you have been so faithful to do. Lord, I'm just a saint and sinner in process like everyone else. And so, God, um, I submit this time to you and to these people who have honored me uh, by letting me be their pastor. So we pray this in Jesus' name. And if you will, say amen. Amen. Be seated in God's presence. So we're going to dig through this this morning, verses 1 through 4, and then we're going to look at 5 through 7, and then 8 through 14. Remember what just happened before this, if you read in the scripture. Jesus had just told his band of his closest followers, the disciples, the twelve, in the final meal. And this is the context of teaching. He had just revealed that one of them is going to betray. And not all of them get this until the betrayal actually happens later on. But at least John does, we're told. He's told Peter, the blurter, the guy who was always out there speaking what was on his mind throughout the Gospels, and Peter who said, Jesus, I'll, I'll never, uh, you know, I, I, this, this isn't going to happen. And, and he says, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before this is all over. And so the disciples hear that. And Jesus is also telling them in this upper room that he's about to leave them. Their rabbi, their teacher, the guy that they've invested their lives with is going to depart, and they don't quite get this whole cross through through being crucified, how God is going to be glorified, and that Jesus' mission will expand greatly, because until it happens, until they live through it and receive the power of the Holy Spirit, they don't fully get it. And so we that has just been unveiled, and then in verse 1, we, we start out again with this, that the disciples are distressed in their hearts. And Jesus tells them that they are to not be distressed. 
And the word that's used here, the Greek word that's used, the same word that was used for Jesus' distress uh, and knowing about his betrayal and of Judas, but now the disciples are experiencing that similar emotion in verse 1. He says, do not let your hearts, another way to translate this would be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And so verse 1 talks about this, this inner turmoil. And Jesus is, saying, is, is helping them face their feelings that in the midst of loss and grief and betrayal and denial, uh, there is a legitimate emotion going on. It's that same word again, or same root word of terrasso, uh, this inward turmoil. And he says, you know what? I know what you're going through. I've been through it, and I've been through everything and more, uh, and will go through everything and more than you've been through. And he says, don't let this emotion overwhelm you. Don't let it become so controlling uh, that it paralyzes you. And then he gives them some some guides on what do I do if I'm experiencing this overwhelmness in my faith where it seems like nothing is going the right way, where there's betrayal and there's denial and there's all kinds of things falling aside. And the word of the Lord comes to them and says, do not be distressed. Put your belief in God the Father and also in me. And as you lean into that by faith, something will change within you and propel you through this. And then he goes on and he builds on this. There's a proper belief uh, for God, in God in a time of a storm. Now, I, I want to say there's a time to wrestle with doubt and that, uh, that certainty can become an idol, in fact. A wonderful book talks about the benefit of the doubt in our faith and that mature faith wrestles with God as an Israelite faith uh, where he, the name is changed and he receives the word Israel because Jacob wrestles with the angel, wrestles with God. And so there's something about that and there's a time to lean into God in the midst of a storm as well. Sometimes you just have to be able to say, you know what, I'm not going to solve it all right now, but I'm going to continue to lean in based on what he's done and who he is and his character. I'm going to lean into that divine love and move forward in him. And so he says this, he gives him this, and and then he unpacks it a little more. He said, by the way, he just told him that he's leaving, and he say, where I'm going, my father's house, there are many dwelling places. Now, this old gospel hymn that some of us sang talks about mansions just over the hilltop. In the old King James translation, uh, they use the old English word mansion to talk about dwelling places. In modern usage, mansion in modern English has taken on a lot more, uh, uh, many more attributes than it was in the older Middle English of King James. Back then, it just kind of meant a dwelling place, a place to live. In fact, parsonages, where a pastor would live in a house, sometimes were called manses, which is a version of this word mansion. And, well, maybe some Church of the England bishops lived in mansions, but most, no. Uh, so this idea of dwelling places, and so that mansion in the gospel hymn gets a little weird in modern usage because we think of uh, palatial houses with uh, that kind of thing. And it's not talking about individual mansions on property, but rather one large dwelling where there are many rooms which are added on. In fact, in the ancient uh, Jewish culture, if you had if a family was landed, they, oftentimes there'd be multiple generations living on one parcel of land, and they would add on another room or another place for the dwelling to be. And, and the bridegroom, before his wedding, would go uh, back to the father's house and would add on and find this space where he could begin his relationship with his wife and his family that would come along And so he would prepare and then prepare a place for the bride to come. And so part of this is language like that, that Jesus is going back to the Father's house to prepare a place for the church, the body, uh, the image of us all as sort of the bride and, and becoming one with God and dwelling in Jesus and Jesus dwelling within us. And so this is what's going on in this language here in verses 1 through 4. 
uh, this idea that we will, he will come to the disciples and that they will join him again. And he said, this wasn't so I would have told you. And then uh, if you continue on, I am going away to make ready a place for you, verse 3. And if I go make ready a place for you, I will come again and take you to be with me. Uh, This right here is part of that doctrine of the Christian hope. It is perhaps the clearest statement that Jesus makes in the New Testament about the coming again of Christ. That he not only died on the cross, rose from the dead, taught for some days uh, disciples, and over 500 people saw him uh, after his death and resurrection, and then he ascended into heaven. And, And that's not the end of the story. Here he's saying, by the way, disciples, I'm about to exit through the cross and all of that, but I will come again to bring you with me. And so this is an orthodox Christian belief that Christians have confessed from the beginning. We find it in the creeds of the church, the early baptismal confessions that later become creeds, the Nicene Creed, which we quote in the Apostles' Creed. Sometimes here he says, and he will come again in glory, and he will come again in glory, meaning Jesus. He will come again in glory to judge, to bring justice to the earth, uh, to make set right everything that's wrong, to restore beauty and order and all of those things, and to end the brokenness and the misuse of our freedom and spiritual beings. He said, he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. In fact, in the North American Baptist Statement of Faith, the group we're affiliated with, it has a similar statement. Let me see if I can find it here. It says, we believe God in his own time and in his own way will bring all things to their appropriate end. There's something beautiful about this statement. It's got specificity and a lot of vagueness. Uh, We believe God in his own time and in his own way will bring about, will bring about all things to their appropriate end and establish the new heavens and the new earth. Here we see part of this in John chapter 14, verse 3. I will, Jesus said, I will come again to take you with me so that where I am, you may be too, and you will know the way I am going. Now, the way he's about to define for them, as Thomas is used as a foil in the next verse, Thomas, sort of like clueless Thomas. Peter's the blurter. Thomas is sort of the Mr. Mrs. is not Mr. Captain Obvious, misses some of the obvious things. And so he's used as a foil by John to uh, unpack this some more. I want to pause and say this. In the background where I grew up, we talked a lot about the end times, and we had people come through that had it nailed down. I mean, they would talk about who was the the man of this and that in Daniel and what this part of Isaiah was talking about and how to interpret this part of Revelation, and they had these elaborate things they would put on charts and handouts and then later on PowerPoints uh, on the screen, and they would often be awful, gaudy, awful PowerPoints, but they would describe, not visually beautiful, thank you to my wife who helps us do that here, uh, awful outlines, and and they would say who the beast was going to be, and they would try to nail down all this stuff about the end times, about how it was all going to go up in a ball of fire, and there would be nuclear war, and I, I kid you not, one guy came through the church, and this was, uh, and he did like a three-night seminar on the end times, and he had it down to it was going to be a gay, I kid you not, is what he said, and I quote, a gay Belgian supercomputer programmer would be the Antichrist. He had it that figured out. And I'm thinking, oh, so many problems. Where do you even start? Now, I like secular apocalyptic theories that the machines are going to take over and that will be the end. But, you know, Christians have these theories too. There's secular, there's Christian versions, there's Islamic versions, there's other religious versions. 
But it makes me think that God has woven something within us to know innately that this is not all there is and something new will come one day, whether it's thousands of years or billions of years or five more years or tomorrow morning before you get on the sky train. We don't know when, but sometime this creation as we know it is going to be wrapped up. Now, how it's going to be wrapped up, that's where all the debate rages in Christianity. I like how N.T. Wright talks about Jesus coming back and he's bringing together, marrying heaven and earth. He's recreating the old and bringing the new together. Not in some fiery ball of inferno, uh, worst action-packed movie out of Hollywood, but, uh, but rather something beautiful and recreative, something of the old. You will know that this new thing has happened, but you also recognize some of the old in it as well. That speaks, to, I think, more clearly to some of the other images of Scripture. But again, where I was raised, this was something that was beat into our heads. He's coming again. And some people went to the extreme of that means that this world and this creation doesn't matter at all. We're just going to hold the fort till Jesus comes, the parousia. We're going to wait and we're just going to, and you know what? It's okay that the wildfires are burning and it's okay that temperatures may be rising. and It's okay that all of this stuff, and who knows? I'm not going to debate the science on that, but let's assume some of this stuff is surely part of the brokenness and sin of humans misusing creation because we see it in our own lives. We'll just magnify it when we do things together. And, and, and some would be, they sort of had this mentality of uh, just, I don't care. It's all going to go to hell in a handbasket. It's all going to burn away, and so I don't care. And in fact, when you read Scripture, we find that God cares in, in, intensely about this creation, that he cares immensely about the here and the now, that in fact, he's going to recreate this creation and use it in the new creation and deal with the brokenness. Because they misunderstood some of the verses that talked about him burning away the things that don't last. He's talking about our works as believers, the stuff that doesn't last. If we're doing things that aren't eternal, then we need to be focused more on that because that's the lasting stuff. But that's not to say that we don't care about the world now and our neighbors now. In fact, you can't read Jeremiah where he says, You are to seek the welfare of the city I've placed you in, for in its flourishing you will also flourish. You can't ignore that Jesus said if you see someone hurt or wounded, that it is your uh, obligation that they become your neighbor in that moment to express the love of God. You don't just say, well, it's all going to go to hell anyway in a handbasket, and someday Jesus is going to come and rescue us all from this. His rescue is taking us with him, but he's also coming down. Thessalonians uses the language of him catching us up, meeting us in the air as he's descending And he's not sort of fake descending halfway to go back up again. He's descending all the way to make the heavens and the new Jerusalem come down to earth and recreation of all things and making all things new. So we are to care. So I think for me when I read this and I think if we've got a mansion, it can become an escapist thing, which is unhealthy for the mission of God on the earth now. God loves his creation. He died for everyone in creation In fact, Paul tells us that the current creation is groaning for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. So this is important to get this in perspective. That how we view this idea of this Christian hope of eternal life is not escapist on one hand, nor to go to the other ditch and pretend it's all just spiritual and metaphorical and nothing's actually going to change, sort of the far left of Christian theology, but rather stay in the grounded center, the radical center of Christian orthodoxy that says, we believe that he will come again. He will come again to bring the fullness of justice. So I don't have to quarrel up on God's throne. God can handle his own throne just fine without my help or your help. Amen. And so we're in that place of recognizing that he will come. And he says to the disciples in the midst of the turmoil, and I think of post-Christian Christianity and Christians in Canada and America and Europe, 
See, we need to remember that he is still working and that because he is coming again, we can remain faithful. Even if we don't see all of the results that maybe we want to see, our faithfulness is rooted in his faithfulness, that he is coming back, he is preparing a place, and so we can risk a little more for the kingdom because this is not all there is. We can risk a little more because he's got our eternal dwelling handled. We can risk a little more because... The, the, the things on this side are not as important in terms of clinging on to it. There is more to come, and he is faithful. Well, Thomas, like most of us, would have said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. Basically saying, Lord, I don't have a blessed clue of what you just said. I know some of you have said that to me after sermons, and that's not encouraging. I just want you to know that. <laughs> oh, thank you, Lord. God bless these people. <laughs> He said, how can we know the way? And Jesus replied, and this verse, now we're into the second section if you're following along. Oh, I had more notes. Well, I'll come back to that in a second. But this verse, oh, I love this one. And Jesus replied, he said to Thomas, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's going to the Father's house to prepare many dwelling places. Thomas says, we don't know the way. And Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And if you have known me, you will know my Father too, verse 7. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him, verses 5, 6, and 7. And I'll pause there for a moment. Pat Bailey tells a story of, he says, that the, she says, the last, the big day had come, my son Brian and his wife, Becky, uh, were heading south to Florida Keys for their 15th wedding anniversary. We just moved from Florida. They can have the Keys. Uh, my sister lived there for a couple of years, but whatever. Go see the Keys, lovely friends. It's a great place to visit. So they were heading south to Florida Keys for their 15th anniversary, and she volunteered to house sit and watch over the grandsons, and she says, Nathan 7 and Joshua 5. And so the three of us, Pat goes on, we're looking forward to our vacation, pool splashing, happy meals, park Olympics, and snuggle time. And Brian and Becky slipped into the boys' room around 7 a.m. to give them last-minute hugs and kisses. And Brian and Becky live somewhere in Florida, based on the context here, and to capture goodbye waves from the front window. And when I woke up an hour or so later, I could tell, hear the telltale sounds of youthfulness echoing in the room, playing going on. They were up and at it. The starting bell has already rung. They're going and having a wonderful time. She came out and found them then uh, eventually wrapped in blankets and looking at acceptable cartoons on the TV. She goes on and says, it was a rainy day that day, that first day, and it seemed to go on forever. And the three of us played games and watched videos and drew pictures. And I got out my famous granny bag with all kinds of toys and things in it for them to play and to explore. And they took their time as we got towards evening and ready for sleep. The phone rang and Brian and Becky, the parents of the boys, called and They each took a turn talking with their mom and dad, and tears began to flow down this five- and seven-year-old cheeks. And soon, she says, Grandma Pat says, they were unconsolable, and the whole situation had become too much. The boys were tired. Their mom and dad were so far away in the Florida Keys. And as much as they loved me, they wanted mom and dad. She goes on, so when we finally got back to the bedroom, I tried to quiet the boys down as best as I could. Eventually, Josh fell asleep with his mouth wide open, still crying. And Nate, being older, couldn't stop thinking about his parents, and he was like a record stuck in one spot over and over and over, wearing a groove so deep I had no idea how to help him. 
through his wailing and shaking arms, reached out to me and his little voice spoke some profound words. Grandma, I'm homesick and yet I'm home. How can that be? In the end, I took him to my room, let him cuddle and rubbed his back and spoke soft words until he finally fell asleep and so did I. Pat concludes and says, we only had one night of tears. It was Nathan's idea that his mom and dad should call him during the day this time when he wasn't tired and it wasn't near bedtime. And thankfully it worked. So when Brian and Becky returned five days later, the boys were ecstatic. Their faces were filled with smiles and they couldn't get close enough to each parent. At last, home was home. Augustine said that God has placed eternity in our hearts and that they don't rest until we find our home in him. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has put eternity in humans' hearts, yet so that we cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end, that there is something within each one of us that recognizes the truth, the wonder, the deeper and older magic. I love that phrase from C.S. Lewis. I use it almost every Sunday. Uh, But the deeper and older magic, that there is more, and God has placed that within you. And it's an experiential truth that you lean into throughout life. And so there's a proper understanding of what's going on here. In the middle, Philip says, or rather, Thomas says to Jesus, Where are you going? And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You have seen me, you have seen the Father. And so this middle section is this ultimate radical claim. It's interesting, missiologists, people who study when Christianity goes across into new places, into new people and new lands, talk about this idea that there is a gospel DNA or a gospel strain that can be found in every global culture, that there's something about the message of Jesus that resonates with every single one of us. And here Jesus makes this claim. He doesn't say like many great holy people of the past, this is the way, let me show you the way. He doesn't say, let me write a book. In fact, people, this is their response, the revelation of God inspired by the Holy Spirit, but Jesus didn't write the Bible in that sense of directly writing it down. Like some other prophets, we could speak of Joseph Smith and Muhammad, for example. He doesn't say, I'm going to write down the truth to you. He says, I am the truth. This is an insane claim unless you truly believe what you're saying. He's a lunatic liar or truly is the Lord of all. And he says, I am the life that in Christ and receiving Christ's spirit within you, there's a power of life, his life that comes and dwells in you and does something that animates you in a new way as you were designed to be in fellowship with God by him dwelling by his spirit within you. This is a scandalous, outrageous claim. And I know I'm, I'm taking a little bit of time on this one, but it's so important to hear this this morning, beloved Some of you may be wrestling with this from the outside. Some of you may have received this truth and you're wrestling with it from the inside. But ultimately, you have to decide what will you do with this? How will you work through this? And we're told later on in the New Testament how we work through it is by belief in Christ saying, I I can't understand it all. I'm going to believe in order to begin to understand it better Anselm speaks of this in the ancient church. We believe in order to understand. We come to some truths only through experience. And so receiving Christ is how we begin to experience him as the truth, the way, and the life. Thomas, within his Jewish context, wanted to have a revelation of the Father, just like Moses had a partial revelation of God's glory 
on Mount Sinai. And how, how we also see that uh, we read this morning, in fact, the worship team did. I don't think they knew my notes, but they, they read part of it from Isaiah chapter 6. The prophet Isaiah, Isaiah has this, this uh, sense of a vision of God's glory, a partial a vision. I saw the Lord seated on the throne, uh, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And around him, the creatures were crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God who was. And, 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 and so this partial revelation of God. And so Thomas is asking, I want that kind of revelation of God, Jesus. And Jesus says to him, in me, you have the fullest picture a human can possibly have of who God is. It's scandalous. It's tough to wrestle with. But if you push through that and you believe in order to understand, you begin to have an experience of God that will change your life. And so he says this to him. Philip doesn't quite get it. Verse 8, he says, Philip said, Lord. So we had Thomas, and now Philip's chiming. He said, Lord, show us the Father, and we will be content. And Jesus, probably somewhat saddened, somewhat, you're still not getting it, guys. There's hope for all of us, isn't there? (laughs) He said, Jesus wrote, have I been with you for so long, and you have not known me, Philip? The person who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father residing in me performs his miraculous deeds. And he, and he keeps on, he says, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. He says, if you don't believe me, believe the works that you've seen. But he's telling Philip, hey, pay attention. I dwell in the Father, the Father dwells in me. And this is a revelation of the beginning, the doctrine of the Trinity of God. And in Jesus, God comes to earth, puts on flesh, dwells among us. He intends among us. And so we can begin to experience and learn. And of course, he had to pick a time and a place to do that. And he did it in this time and this place. And so we, here we are still leaning into that marvelous work by his spirit. Oh, there's so much more I want to say, but I know for sake of time, there's such good stuff in this passage. How can we think of the way, the truth, and the life? We can think of it in several ways. It's, it was, in fact, it's pretty hard to exhaust the ways we could talk about Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. You could preach a whole year on that. He's the mode. He's the path. Leaning into him is the path. I like how N.T. Wright has said that how some people wrestle with this exclusive claim. Let me see here. I was Earlier I was going to share it, but I think it's worth sharing now. It's sort of this old model that people talk about. Well... There's one mountain of divine revelation and all the religions are paths that sort of wander up to the top of the mountain. And there's different ways to think about this. I like how N.T. Wright says, if, if you dethrone Jesus, you enthrone something else. And he said, what you really are saying if you claim that all religions are the same is that none of them are more than a distant echo. Hear this, a distorted image of reality. You're saying that reality God, the divine, the ultimate, is remote and unknowable and that neither Jesus nor Buddha nor Moses nor Krishna nor Muhammad nor go on and on and on. The Anagranth gives us access to it. They all provide a way towards the foothills of the mountain, not the way to the summit. And Bishop Wright says this, the whole of early Christianity insists that the one true and living God, the creator of all, the God of Israel, and that the God of Israel has acted decisively within history to bring Israel's story to its proper end goal, and through that, to address and rescue the world, which is all of us. Or as Bruxy Cavey talks about it, in Christianity, God is not at the top of the mountain 
God got off the mountain and came down to us in flesh and walked and dwelt among us. And there were eyewitnesses and there is recordings of this. And he sent the spirit in the church. He came down from the top of the mountain and dwelt and lived a life. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said. No one comes to God but through me. I and the Father, God the Father and I, we are one. We dwell, we dwell within each other. This can be used to beat people up. Whenever we talk about the exclusive claims of Christianity, we need to do it with grace and truth. And we need to recognize that Paul tells us the Holy Spirit's at work everywhere with anyone seeking truth. So lest we come across as raging, hardcore exclusivists or universalists that every path goes to the same place, we need to understand the radical center of Christian orthodoxy acts in humility and says the Holy Spirit's at work everywhere. I have sheep in other folds, Jesus said. And there are stories of people coming to Christ when mission, when we cross cultures and there was already a gospel seed within that culture that the Holy Spirit had already worked and, and, and the enemy may have tried to distort it, but the seed is still there. I don't have time to unpack that, but I will one day. The three views of inclusivism, exclusivism, and universalism, and there's a radical center that we must hold to. I'm delighted that there is a music that God has woven in creation and wonder that people hear. Let's get to the end here, shall we? Amen? Abide in Jesus, friends. Abide in Jesus. Abide in Jesus. Brent Curtis, John Eldridge relayed this. He said, if I'm not abiding in Jesus, then where is it that I abide? I once asked myself. We make a choice to live and dwell someplace. You have to live in some tent. You have to live in some camp. You have to call someplace your spiritual home, whether it's pop atheism and scientism as a returning science into a religion instead of pursuit of truth, whether it's some other religious faith. You always are living somewhere. It's just whether or not you're acknowledging it and owning it. Well, let's get to the last verses. I have more stories, but I want to land it. Here we go. Verses 8 through 14. We've already read up to verse 11. Verse 12 says this, I tell you the solemn truth that the person who believes in me will perform the miraculous deeds that I am doing and will perform even greater deeds than these because I'm going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. These last verses were also ones that in the place where I became a Christian often got twisted into really some weird stuff. So I want to spend just a moment on these. It says, I tell you the truth, the person who believes in me will perform the miraculous deeds that I am doing. Some in the wilder ends of Christianity believe that if Jesus raised the dead, we ought to be raising the dead. And yet I have yet to see one of those healing evangelists go down to the local hospital and just start clearing the place out. Some of you are like, he's not Baptist enough. He's too charismatic. I pray for miracles and healing, and I believe that they can happen. But... If you look at the context of this verse, he's saying he ascends into heaven, and they'll get this later as we get into John and and Acts. They'll get this later, but he'll send the Spirit, so the Spirit that he's operating out of on earth when he's on earth in a body will then be poured out on all who are open to it so all flesh can use and access the power of the Holy Spirit. And he goes on and says, if you pray according to my name, that doesn't just mean, oh, Jesus, I want a Bentley. Jesus, give me a Bentley. Jesus, no. Lord, heal my eyes, heal my eyes. And I've prayed for that, and he has not done it, so I move on and use the natural healing that he has enabled us to do, because all truth is God's truth. Thank you for contacts and glasses and LASIK eye surgery. According to his name, 
And in the ancient world, we know this. If you've heard this, probably if you've been a believer for any amount of time, you've probably heard this a hundred and plus times. The name represents the character of the person. If you ask according to the will of Jesus, the purpose of Jesus, the plan of Jesus, that's where prayers become more effective. And they're not the only variable in, in when we pray. It's not just you and God, but it has more effectiveness when we pray according to his will. As Jesus gave us in the model prayer in Matthew and in Luke, he says, uh, pray this way, uh, hallowed be your name. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If we ask according to his name, it's according to who he is, his love, his power, his grace, what he has done. You don't just get to name it and claim it and blab it and grab it as some of these faith church yahoos, mainly down in the States. Thank you, Canada. Uh, but I'm sure there's some here as well. You don't pray, according, you pray according to his will. Pilgrim, you come here on Friday night and you pray and we're going to talk about praying locally and globally in that time. We're praying that our neighbors would get their rooted identity in his love versus my education, my status, my culture, my other, those things are fine, but they have to be secondary to the love of God because those things can come and go or they can be taken away, but the love of God in you and Jesus cannot. We pray according to his will. We pray according to his purposes. So we need to know the teachings of Jesus. I, I got to land this, I know. Here we go. And whatever you ask in my name, according to my will and in alignment with who I am, the Father may be glorified in the Son, I will do it. Are you praying prayers of faith over your lives in church according to the will of Jesus? Pray for your relatives, your friends, your neighbors. Pray that you would have a passion to know him more and that you would begin to get more of your identity out of his eternal love and nothing can separate you from that so you can risk more and be more full of love instead of grasping and pretending and acting like there's only a limited supply of everything but rather the superabundance of God leaning into this truth. Pray in his name. Well, I began with an old school hymn. I'm going to end with an old school hymn. The <laughs> worship team prepared to deliver us from it in a second. The closer you are to the end of life or the more aware you become of our fleeting nature of our life, which is harder when you're young because you think you're eternal and you're not. I just had a birthday and I have children that are teenagers, so I'm feeling old. I think I have more white hairs now because of this year at Pilgrim than I had when I came. I'm feeling old, age, not quite decrepit, but old. <laughs> and some of you are, which are way farther than I am, or probably let me know about that later. Uh, I'm skeptical when people use these passages as an escape from their responsibilities. It's rather should empower us. Some of you in your 70s and 80s and beyond here, you have the power of prayer still. You can commune with God and pray for those around you. Don't underestimate that power. One of the most powerful people in the church that I was later discipled in was one old, la uh, one old lady. She's not here. Thank you, Jesus. I just said that. But she's an intercessor. She's still alive and she's still praying. There are people that decide that I will do what I can do with the strength of the Lord that I have until he takes me home, and I'm going to risk it. It's never too late to engage. One of my favorite gospel hymns about the end of the life uh, is a funny one, and it's got some interesting verses, but it says this. It says, sing the wondrous love of Jesus. It starts out on the right note. What's your center? What's your center? 
the wondrous love of Jesus displayed on the cross, the death, the resurrection, his outrageous love for all humanity, forward and backward in time, displayed on the cross. Sing the wondrous love of Jesus. Sing his mercy and his grace. And then again, there's that old English word. In the mansions, bright and blessed, he'll prepare for us a place. John 14. And then it says, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be when we all see Jesus, for he will return. He's preparing a place, as he said, and we'll sing and shout the victory. It says, when we walk the pilgrim pathway, the verse 2, clouds will overspread the sky, meaning that there will be dark days, there will be tough times, there will be denials, there will be betrayals, there will be our own brokenness and sinfulness. While we walk the pilgrim pathway, we're pilgrim people here, clouds will overspread the sky, but when traveling, days are over, not a shadow, not a sigh. And then the chorus says this again, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we will sing and we will shout the victory. Now in a Pentecostal church, when they're singing at, they really do shout that, by the way. In verse three, let us then, and this is my, perhaps one of my favorite verses. There's only one other one. So so hear this poem, this song. Let us then be true and faithful, trusting, serving every day. We lean into eternity. Eternity should equip us for good works to make the place better now. Let us then be true and faithful, trusting, serving every day. And this one gets me every time because you see it in the book of Revelation. You see it in some of the hymns of the church in the early New Testament. He says, just one glimpse, the fullness of Jesus. We are not like Thomas. We don't get to see him that way only in one another until the life of the world to come. It says, just one glimpse of him, Jesus in glory, will all the toils of life repay. If you've been captivated by the wonder and the magic and the mystery and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and you work and sometimes it seems like it's three steps forward, two steps backwards, I remember at the end what I do, as Paul said uh, to his church, is what we do for Jesus Christ is not in vain, we'll be rewarded. And most of the biggest reward is to be in the presence of the one who completes all that we are, the Lord himself. It says, onward to the prize before us, soon as beauty will behold, soon the pearly gates will open, we shall tread the streets of gold. That's all metaphorical language, by the way. And then the chorus, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we will sing and shout the victory. Stand with me this morning. We want to do the takeouts and pray. Worship team, would you come up? There's a lot in these verses here. Obviously, sermons have been preached over these texts for 1,000, 2,000 years at least. Maybe a little less than 2,000, but we're thereabouts. The takeouts this morning are this. Because of what Jesus faced, he tells us, don't let your heart be troubled. Would you say that with me? Don't let your heart be troubled. Don't let your heart be troubled. He's faced it. You can be honest about your emotions But then don't let them paralyze you. There's more. The second thing I want you to remember this morning is that we can risk more because this is not all there is. Gary Berge said one of his friends in his 80s said, and reflecting on his life said, I would have spent more time giving and less time acquiring. This is an eternal perspective. Remember the key verse, verse 6. Jesus is everything. The way, the truth, and the life. 
And finally, these things empower us to continue the kingdom work, and we pray according to his name to do the works that he desires for us to do. He doesn't tell us to do stuff without also giving us the source of power. So we pray in his name and let his spirit empower us. And so this morning, as we look at this passage and we wrestle through and ask, what does it mean for us? It may speak to different aspects of your life and where you're at on the pilgrim way or the pilgrim journey. But will you work for greater things than just what you see right before you, but also loving others because that outlasts all the stuff that goes away until the life of the world to come. So let's pray. Lord, I know that we have covered a lot of territory in these few verses in John, and you're unpacking this for your disciples before you die on the cross. We have the benefit of hindsight And so I pray today if someone is beginning to hear that eternal yearning that you have put in each human heart and you've woven in creation and even in other religious pursuits that we would take that next step and say, Jesus, I want to believe in order to understand. So I invite you to come. You are spirit now on the earth. Your spirit would come and dwell and live within me. I turn from being my own God and trying to be in control of it all. I know that's a lie. I'm not in control. The one thing I do have is to say so to let you in or not. And so, Jesus, come in. You can say that today. Jesus, come in to my life. Jesus, come into my heart. Jesus, come in. And then begin the journey in a community of faith that wrestles with the Bible, that worships, that leans into Jesus. So, Holy Spirit, continue your work at Pilgrim. Continue your work in this place. Help us to understand that this is a sacred moment invested and powered by your spirit. And for those of us that are closer to the end than the beginning of life, may we joyfully embrace an eternal view and understand that until you call us home, our work is not done. We still need to pray according to Jesus' name for the mission of the kingdom that new people and new generations would come to know him and get their center in you. May we sing those hymns with joy, not as escapism, but recognizing that indeed you have prepared a place and until you come back, we'll be with you in the Father's house until he brings heaven and earth together and marries them as one. We will be in his presence and we can rejoice in the death of the saints. We can rejoice in uh, when loved ones pass away if they know you. We We can rest in that assurance that they are in your presence and that one day when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be for we will sing and we will shout the victory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.